You can't go very far these days without seeing the ad for a plant-based something. Plant-based burger at a fast food chain. Plant-based drink in a dairy aisle. Online meme saying a plant-based diet is going to save the environment. It's a lot to take in on a relatively new idea for consumers in a relatively new product category. Sure, we've had veggie burgers for a long time, but let's be honest, they weren't the tastiest of meals. New offerings today have made people more curious. And sure, climate change has been a discussion for a number of years, but where less driving or eating more local used to be the buzzwords of saving the environment, eating less meat has taken that place. So the question today is how bad is eating meat for the environment? I'm Andrew Campbell, and this is Food Bubble, where I've heard from environmental groups, I've heard from animal rights activists, I've heard from people both selling the meat and selling the plant-based products, each touting their own sides. Hearing all that in the past, today, I thought we needed to find someone in the middle. My name is Jude Kappa. I'm a livestock sustainability consultant working in the UK. And like everything, this is a much more complicated issue than a few lines in a marketing campaign can do justice for it. Of course, anything can be bad for the environment, no matter what it is. And on the other hand, anything can be very good for the environment. And I think what's really important and what often gets missed is that every single food we eat has some environmental impact, you know, whether it's a cheeseburger or a pork chop or an apple or a tofu surprise. Today, we talk with Dr. Capper about the sustainability of livestock. Where is the good? Where does there need to be some improvement? And what it means for you. That's next on Food Bubble. Knowing you've chosen the best insurance company to protect your business should not be complicated. If you have a farm, you need a farm insurance expert. Trillium Mutual's Real Ontario Farm Insurance Brokers understand the unique needs of your farm operation. Trust them to provide you with the best coverage across Ontario. To find a Real Ontario Farm Insurance Broker near you, visit TrilliumMutual.com and follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Trillium Mutual for tips on how to protect what matters most to you. My name is Jude Kappa. I'm a livestock sustainability consultant working in the UK. Livestock sustainability consultant. Now, I always, you know, we actually talk about the word sustainability quite a bit here just to kind of get everybody on the same page in terms of what that means, because obviously it means different things to different people. Maybe you can kind of give me an idea of what being a livestock sustainability consultant means and what the kind of work you do is. Okay, that's a good question because everyone looks a bit blank when I tell them what my job is because it, it isn't as well defined as a, as a doctor or dentist or whatever. About half of my time is spent modeling and from by modeling, I don't mean the kind of clothes and handbags um, type of modeling, but mathematical modeling. And it's on um, sustainability metrics, so things like carbon footprint, water footprint, land use. So, for example, if you wanted to know what would happen if you use Jersey cows rather than Holstein cows to make milk or cheese, or if you wanted to look at product X that would improve growth rate in beef cattle, for example, um, I can do modeling to show what the impacts of those improvements in productivity are. And actually, at the moment as well, I'm doing quite a lot of work on medicines use and antibiotics over here in the UK um, within the livestock industry and how that, that impacts on sustainability. 
And then the other half of my time is generally doing presentations to talk about these things to variance audiences all over the world. Now, it seems, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but that this um, type of job has become more and more popular over the last number of years, given that the conversation that seems to be going on um, around particularly livestock's impact on the environment. Are you seeing more and more of those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, To be honest, when I finished my PhD back a few years ago now, um, I didn't even know that this was going to be an issue. Um, And I'm not sure that anyone did. Um, I went over to the States to work at um, Cornell University back in 2006 now. And um, my boss and I were approached to write a paper on the environmental impact and sustainability implications of using RBST, so recombinant bovine somatotropin in dairy cattle. And that seemed to hit the hit the press, as it were, just as the dairy industry in the US was beginning to think about carbon footprint, climate change, these sort of concepts. So that was, you know, what uh, we published it in 2008, I think, so 11 years ago now. And quite honestly, when I first got into this work, I kind of thought it'd be a flash in the pan. And after a couple of years, I'd have to do something else because the conversations would die down. And they're really not. Um, if anything, they're getting a little bit more intense because it's moved from a conversation just with the policymaker or retailer or or um, farmer to one where we've got the average person thinking about these things and much more stuff in the mainstream media than, than, than we've uh, seen in the past. Well, maybe that's where we can kind of start because I too have heard it. And I don't know whether I'm just paying attention more in the last few weeks or what, but in the last, especially few weeks, it seems several times through that week, you read an article, you hear a podcast, you hear a news piece. And even if it's just, um, you know, kind of one single line that is almost meaningless to the reporter or whoever's saying it, but makes that mention that, oh, well, you can do so much better if you stop eating meat for the environment, or, you know, we just have to consume less livestock products. So let's start with that kind of first question. And it goes back to that first article is that is livestock production bad for the environment? Oh, good question. Um, If I'm going to give a very black and white answer, I would say no. But obviously, I've got a lot of academic training. So I have to Um, follow that with a lot of caveats and depending and possibly and in this situation and so on and so on. Of course, anything can be bad for the environment, no matter what it is. And on the other hand, anything can be very good for the environment. And I think what's really important and what often gets missed is that every single food we eat has some environmental impact, you know, whether it's a cheeseburger or a pork chop or an apple or a tofu surprise, you know, all of them have some impact on carbon footprint, land use, water use, energy use, etc. And I think it's really difficult because we've also got to bring in the concept of also having a balanced diet. So if we eliminate meat or or dairy, for that matter, what are we going to um, consume it in its place? And to give a, a, a very simple example, if we cut out milk because we're concerned potentially about its carbon footprint or its water footprint, If we turn to almond juice instead, that has a really high water footprint. So sometimes with these with these type of concepts, we're training, we're trading one issue for a different issue. 
So we may cut our carbon footprint, but increase our water footprint, or we may cut metric X, but we increase metric Y. But ultimately, anything, as I say, can be good or bad, but it's how we manage it. And, and there's an awful lot of focus on the carbon footprint of livestock, primarily beef and dairy cattle, um, because of their ruminal fermentation and the way that they emit methane. But there's also an awful lot of positives in terms of, for example, the amount of land globally where we can graze cattle, where we couldn't grow other crops. You know, we can't grow apples or corn or quinoa on every bit of land, but there's thousands and millions of acres where we can put grazing livestock on it to produce that food. And we've also got some really positive trade-offs in terms of byproduct feeds. So things that we can't or won't eat from the human feed and fiber industry, which animals can turn into high quality protein. So it's very difficult to kind of give a, a definitive answer because it depends exactly what you're looking at. Is it carbon footprint? And if it's carbon footprint compared to what? Is it water footprint? And if so, compared to what? I think if we all have a balanced diet and we think sensibly about our diet and we use science to examine what we perhaps should be eating, we can come up with a not a climate neutral diet per se, but the best diet that we can have given our situation and um, our personal needs. Now, two of those points that you made, both on the grazing standpoint and on those byproducts too, two things that I think are always left out of the conversation in terms of, well, okay, if we get rid of this, then where do those byproducts go? We're not going to consume them. Um, you know, and kind of the same with the grazing, as you said, you know, does it just grow? So do you have any idea in terms of, um, you know, from any of that modeling you've done, you know, what does the carbon footprint look like? if all of a sudden those byproducts are being landfilled instead or that, you know, pasture isn't all of a sudden being a carbon sink that maybe it is with grazing, but it's just kind of, you know, left to, you know, invasive plants or things like that? Oh, that's a very good question. And I don't have any numbers off the top of my head to support what I'm going to say, which always makes me a little bit nervous because obviously I would quite like to have that. Um, but there is this kind of romantic notion that if we took all the livestock away, the land would kind of return to some perfect grassy meadow full of flowers and butterflies and, and everything would be much better and much happier. And we as a population tend to forget that, that we can get competition and things can go extinct without any human intervention whatsoever so as you say we can have invasive plants we can actually lose biodiversity we can have you know plant species x completely taken over in in a certain area that's what without us doing things with livestock or grazing or cropping or any type of intervention so this kind of romantic romantic image of it all being perfect and sunny um really doesn't always work out now, there is a really nice paper from Cornell University. Uh, Peters was the lead author, and it must have come out in the 2009-2010 kind of time. Um, and they actually showed that in that region, given the land and the climate and the type of soil and so on and so on, 
that the the best diet that a person could have from an environmental impact point of view was actually a diet that did include meat and dairy. Now, not in huge quantities, you know, not huge T-bones with every meal, as it were. But it certainly showed that a whole scale move to a vegetarian or a vegan diet wasn't always the best environmental option. And I'm here um, talking from the UK, obviously, which is obviously very um, different to Canada in terms of our agriculture. But we still have 67% of our land over here that isn't suitable for growing crops. So so the best thing that we can do with literally two thirds of our agricultural area is, is to put livestock on it in terms of producing food. Well, and it's certainly, a, you know, a similar picture here in Canada when you look at, you know, certainly there's areas in, you know, our province here in Ontario that are quite, you know, rocky terrains with very, very little topsoil that you wouldn't really want to do anything but graze. And certainly in Western Canada, there's lots of that too. But, you know, you mentioned the word romanticize with this concept of what food can and can't be and how, you know, me as a consumer can't I do wonderful things for the planet if I just do this? Um, why do we? Why do you think that consumers find that message, um, you know, as simple as it is, um, you know, something to kind of follow along with? Why is it that people within the industry are having trouble countering with, you know, all, all the points that you've made, even if they are a little more complex to understand? I think as people, and this is a kind of a bit of a cliche, but we're more like sheep than we'd like to admit. Um, we're keen to kind of follow the crowd, particularly if the crowd is being promoted by kind of famous people who would like to be like. So if you see, you know, a famous actor or sports star or musician talking about how healthy they are and how they have this wonderful life and it's all so much better because they gave up whatever it might be, you know, meat or dairy or gluten or pepperoni or whatever it might be, then we do have this tendency to kind of think, wow, I can be more like them if I just gave up these things. And also I think while climate change isn't the be-all and end-all, and it's certainly not always the primary factor on which we buy our food or choose our foods. We do kind of want to believe that we're doing the best thing for us, for the planet, for our children and grandchildren and so on. And if we can do that by making a relatively small change that doesn't impact us that much, then we're going to do that and feel better about ourselves, even if it isn't actually the best choice. So, you know, if it's easy for me, which it wouldn't be, but if it were easy for me to give up cheese, for example, I'd go, oh, yeah, I can do that. And then I'll feel positive about my carbon footprint, you know. The, the other issue is that science is a bit difficult to kind of make sexy, you know. It's very easy in the media to talk about the bad news stories, you know, doom and gloom, cattle are killing the planet. If you just did this, it would be so much simpler. You could save the world, you know, just have the chicken versus the beef or the tofu versus the chicken and everything else is good. Um, but counteracting that with not exactly high tech messages, but ones that don't 
immediately resonate and which aren't pushed out every single day becomes really, really difficult. And um, from the social science world, there was some work came out about 30 years ago now, but it still holds true now that it takes five pieces of positive information to negate every piece of negative information. So we really have to push really hard. And I'm probably more sensitive to it than the average person. Um, But as you said earlier, it does seem like every time I read an article or watch the news, there'll be something in there about farming is bad, you know, meat eating is bad, cattle are bad, etc. So we do have this kind of pervasive undercurrent of, you know, you really should be doing more, you really should be giving up meat and dairy. Now, before we kind of get back to the impact, I want to stick on this subject for just a second, because, you know, certainly, you know, with lots of people listening from the industry itself, many of them being farmers themselves, is there a role for them to play that doesn't come across as, um, you know, it's my industry, you're coming and attacking me, it's personal, all of that kind of stuff, and instead you know, comes at it more from, you know, a a standpoint where the consumer could actually get something out of it that maybe they're not feeling as guilty about having that, you know, piece of meat or the chicken instead of the tofu. Is there a role for them to play? Absolutely. And I mean, every talk I do, effectively, someone will say, well, whose job is this to, to tell people this? Is it the media? Is it the government organizations? Is it my levy board? You know, and the simple answer is, it's everybody in agriculture's job. Um, obviously, with the caveat that there are, of course, some people who you wish n- never had a Twitter page or a Facebook page because they will just argue forever. Um, you have those in the UK too. We, I thought that was only in Canada. We do. We have a lot of those in the UK. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think all of us have that responsibility. Um, and again, to kind of bring in the science, when people have done surveys, um, farmers and ranchers actually have a really high high level of trust with the consumer. So we can really build on that. And in contrast to scientists, including me, who tend to go in and say, well, the science says, you know, blah, 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 blah. We need to make it into a story and make it personal. You know, talk about on my farm, this is what I do. This is why I think it's important. This is why my children enjoy it, my grandchildren. I feel very proud to produce safe, affordable, nutritious food. This is why I have this breed of cattle or this type of tractor or grow this particular crop. And I think people really are interested in understanding how food is produced. Um, The only problem is that, of course, nowadays it's far easier to go on Google than to go to a a farm or find a farmer. Um, And, of course, there are many areas or all over the world, particularly urban areas where people literally don't know any farmers. So it's more difficult to have those conversations, but they can be really, really positive and really, really fruitful if we take the time to do it. And as you say, don't come across as a kind of defensive, you're attacking me, even if it feels like an attack. I mean, quite often it is simply because people don't understand and they have been misinformed by Google or the activist organisations. 
So then let's go back to impact and, you know, kind of connect both the farmer and that. Are you finding areas where, you know, as an industry, maybe there are things that we can do a little better to, you know, really prove that, yes, sustainability, yes, um, you know, climate change, all of those are important issues for livestock producers. Therefore, we as an industry are doing this to reduce our footprint. Absolutely. And I think the first thing, and again, it's a cliche, but if we can't measure it, we can't improve it. So we have to have some kind of metric, you know, because if we begin the conversation with, well, I know that I'm doing better than my parents or grandparents, someone's going to say, well, how? Oh, well, um, because, well, I just know, don't I? And because because I am better. Well, that doesn't work. So we've got to have some kind of metric, some kind of measures whether it's something very very high tech or something very very simple one of the conversations that you know i hear a lot is that okay global emissions of all livestock production is and the number varies depending on who you listen to but you know in that kind of 15 to 20 percent range is the number that i usually hear the most um do you find that there are actually more efficient places that, you know, if you were looking for, um, you know, a livestock product that, you know, maybe you'd want to be shopping for these countries because their footprint is actually much smaller. Does that, do those kind of numbers exist? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The one that I would go to immediately because I know the work has been done would be on the dairy side. There was a report came out from the uh, United Nations came out about nine years ago now. Um, And with all these type of reports and global analyses, it it did have its flaws. Um, But if we assume we're just looking at carbon footprint here, so um, grams of carbon per kilo of milk or per uh, litre of milk, North America, including Canada, and Western Europe had the lowest carbon footprint per unit of milk. And there was a there was a very positive correlation with milk yield per cow. So fairly obviously, we have a very developed dairy industry here in Europe, and you also have in North America. So we have high milk yields per cow. You know, around twenty twenty two thousand pounds per cow per year, for example. Um, when we move down, so um, the lowest, I believe, was in Africa. When you go downwards so that you get into a very extensive industry with a dairy cow giving you about 400 pounds of milk per cow per year, you get an incremental increase in the carbon footprint. So it, it isn't just about milk yield per cow, but it shows how important productivity is. And generally speaking, the more productive and the more efficient the industry is, which, of course, tends to go with the development of, of that industry, the lower the carbon footprint. Now, this is in kind of in contrast to our perception, because, again, we have this kind of romantic image that if you've got some cattle out on pasture, not fed grain, no tractors involved, you know, so on and so on, that must have a lower environmental impact. But the cow herself is actually the most important factor. So if she's as productive as she can be, that's going to have a lower carbon footprint per unit of milk than a more extensive um, idyllic type, type system. 
So then just kind of the last subject is on kind of the nutrition side. And I know, you know, you've talked about in the past, um, you know, and, and even we kind of touched on it earlier was that connection between, okay, everything has a carbon footprint, whether it's dairy, whether it's lettuce, whether it's that, but from a nutrition standpoint, obviously, you know, a pound of beef or a pound of milk has a much denser nutrient profile than, um, you know, lettuce or almond milk or anything like that. Um, you know, how, how far off are the numbers in terms of, you know, some of these things, uh, you know, when we talk about that environmental impact, um, you know, because I don't think a lot of consumers necessarily recognize what those differences might be. I think that's exactly right. And, and that's why in some, some ways kind of almond juices and rice juices and so on and so on are quite misleading because they tend to be in the dairy case in the grocery store so people just often think well it's labeled milk so it must just be like milk and certainly over here in Europe um, there's been a ruling that almond based and rice based and hemp based and so on products can't use the word milk to describe themselves Um, the exception is coconut milk simply because that's been called coconut milk for the last you know 100 years or so But yes, there was some really nice, just to go back to the science again, there was some really, um, really nice uh, science that came out of Sweden. And they actually looked at the the greenhouse gas emissions from various different drinks. So they had milk, i.e. dairy milk, they had red wine, they had oat juice, they had soy juice, they had water, they had soda. And what they found was, not entirely surprisingly, When they looked at the nutrient density, i.e. the proportion of the person's daily recommended nutrient allowance, which came from dairy compared to all of these other drinks, dairy scored really highly for kind of protein, essential fatty acids, minerals, vitamins, etc., compared to all the others. And it had a kind of middling carbon footprint. So when they looked at the ratio between the nutrients and the carbon, i.e. basically how many nutrients do you get per kilo of carbon footprint, as it were, dairy looked really, really good. And this is from memory, but the value for dairy was about 0.57, higher values being better than low values. Orange juice was second at about, I think, 0.2 or so, and then soy and juice, almond juice, water, red wine, etc. So even though we're used to thinking about carbon footprint now, which, as I say, as an issue we've been thinking about as consumers for 10 years or so, we tend to see it as grams of carbon or tons of carbon per gram of food, as it were, but we're actually going to think have to think beyond that in terms of the nutrients that we get from that food. Um, In terms of meat and kind of meat substitutes, it's a little bit more nuanced um, because obviously there's a lot more kind of flexibility with the plant-based foods in terms of mixing your um, vegetarian patty or sausage or whatever it might be to include lots of different types of plant proteins um, so on a protein basis, they don't do, don't do too badly. But where they fall down is in terms of, for example, vitamin B12, some of the um, essential 
amino acids and essential fatty acids that we do see in meat. So the differences between meat and the plant-based substitutes is, isn't quite as clear as the difference between milk and then other drinks. Um, but it's still there and it's absolutely something that we should all be thinking about when we're in the grocery store trying to decide between actual meat and dairy or um, any of the plant-based substitutes that are out there. Now, just to kind of make sure I've got this right in my head, that you mentioned the meat alternatives versus meat and where protein stacks up, it's not too bad. Are we talking like that nutrient density? And you mentioned the term, you know, kind of tons, you know, carbon footprint to nutrient density. Is that mean they're comparable, both of them, or is one quite a bit better than the other from a protein standpoint, or just where Ooh, is that? That's a good question. And I'm, try- I'm trying to remember whether I've seen any papers on meat and meat substitutes that's, that's actually looked at the greenhouse gas emissions. Generally speaking, plant-based proteins do have a lower carbon footprint than um meat products, which is not entirely surprising, but the protein quality of the plant-based substitutes tends to be less than that of meat. So they are lacking in either essential fatty acids, essential amino acids, or um, nutrients like vitamin B12, which we can only get from meat and dairy products. Then do you think this move to plant-based anything is going to tip the scales away from livestock farming or... Just how big do you think demand is actually going to get? I see a lot in the media again about there being massive glo- um, massive growth in things like the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger and plant-based, you know, A, B, C and D. And I've, I've asked various retailers about this and I can't help thinking that it's not necessarily growth because everybody's going vegetarian or vegan. I think it's just because people have more choice. And when people have more choice, they're going to choose different things and try different things. So I'm not sure that when we see, you know, 23% of people bought a plant-based foodstuff in the last two weeks or whatever the numbers might be, that doesn't mean that they've all gone, we're going to go vegan. That means they're potentially going, we're going to try these plant-based burgers alongside our pork sausages and pork chops at the barbecue on Sunday. Um, so again, I think we have to be very careful about the messages that we see in the media about how the alternatives are you know, taking over the world. I'm not sure they are. I think people are just trying different things just to see what they're like. Canadian consumers have lots of questions about their food. Don't let someone else tell your story for you. FarmFood360.ca is an award-winning online video project. Its mission is to help farmers, food processors, and others tell their own stories in their own words. And to be a trusted resource for consumers using high-quality video and 360-degree technology. Show the world the beauty of Canadian agriculture. Tell your story with FarmFood360.ca. Visit www.farmfoodcareon.org for details. From nutrition to how it's grown, you have lots of questions about your food. Don't waste time online trying to find the best answers. Find food and farming information you can trust right now at bestfoodfacts.org. Bestfoodfacts.org connects you with leading university experts on food and farming in North America. 
a credible source found across all social channels. It features over 500 answered questions and new content every week. Your food and farming questions answered. Visit bestfoodfacts.org today. Well, that's it for this week. If you haven't heard the big news on top of finding us in your podcast app like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or a dozen others, you can now find our episodes in the Real Agriculture audio feed. You can find it and lots more audio at realagriculture.com. You can always find me on social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter. The handle for all of them is Fresh Air Farmer, so please track me down and do send me your thoughts and ideas about the show. I'm Andrew Campbell. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.